This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. COVID-19 is, is just one of those things that you can contract or that can be a part of your health. And we never like to turn our back completely, even though COVID-19 has certainly been a fixture and a focus over the last eight months. We never like to turn our back on other findings, and especially if those findings encourage us to do things early, to be proactive in our health care. Our very good friend on London Live, Rob Maddock, has done such a great job telling people, hey, get tested for Lynch syndrome. Find out if you may have a greater chance of developing colon cancer. Just ask your doctor, can I take that test? Can I be tested for Lynch syndrome? And there are so many other things that we can do. We know the fit tests are back, which are fecal sample tests. And they certainly help. They were stopped for a little while. They certainly help in early detection measures. We are told after, and the age tends to vary, 45, 47, 50, Make sure you're getting that colonoscopy. If you are a female, get a mammogram. If you are a male, get that PSA baseline number. We're told about all of those things. And the reason being, if you can catch something early, science is pretty amazing. You've got a better chance of beating it. And we all want to stay around here as long as we can, even in pandemic conditions. Seriously, this is still not a bad place to be. So... When we hear about stories that allow us to talk about early detection or things we should be on the lookout for, we want to make sure and bring those to you. And we have an opportunity to do that right now, courtesy of Dr. Paul Adams from Western University. And we're talking about liver cancer because some work that Dr. Adams has been doing in collaboration with a team at the University of Exeter has produced some Pretty interesting results. Joining us right now is Dr. Paul Adams. Dr. Adams, how are you? I'm just fine. Thank you. Great to have you here. Uh, I know that this could come up in a spelling bee, but I'm going to take a stab at pronouncing it, and then you fix it, okay? Okay. We're going to be talking about hemochromatosis. How close am I? Excellent. That's what it is? That's what it is. That's Canada's most common genetic disease. It's the most common genetic disease in North America. It's the most common disease in Europe, Australia. You you can't name a disease that's even close to this in prevalence because it's so common. I mean, you mentioned Lynch syndrome. That's extremely rare compared to this. For example, we did a study in Ontario in the year 2000 where we sampled over... 20,000 people from Ontario and found that amongst people of European ancestry, particularly Northern European ancestry, about one in 200 had this disease. And if you go to places in Europe like Dublin, Ireland, one in four carry this gene and one in 80 people have it. So it's extremely common. It's the most common genetic test that is done in Canada now. It's a simple blood test that is widely available, not too expensive. And we have just, uh, in partnership with a group in the UK called Biobank, we've actually taken a new approach, uh, an approach that's possibly a glimpse into the future, 
instead of just testing for a specific genetic disease, the Biobank Project tested for all known genes at once. And the cost of this technology is dropping all the time. I mean, this is the kind of things that was, that was pioneered in the Human Genome Project. And it raises some tricky questions for genetic counseling, for ethics, uh, for insurance discrimination, a lot of things like this. And do you really want to know every single gene that you have, particularly if it's a gene that has a bad outlook? Now, in the study published today in the Journal of the American Medical Association, uh, we focused in on hemochromatosis because it was common, because it was treatable. This disease leads to iron overload in your body. Uh, you get one gene from each parent. That's called an autosomal recessive disease. And when your parents get together, you get two genes, you've got the disease. You get one gene, you're a carrier. You get no genes... Uh, you don't get the disease. Maybe you even have different parents. This is how you find out with genetic testing. Mm. Uh, so uh, with hemochromatosis, there's a simple treatment. It's rather medieval. It's bloodletting or bleeding, similar to blood donation. We're not using leeches. And uh, that removes iron, and your iron levels go down. If your iron levels go down, the damage to your internal organs go down. If you don't know you have hemochromatosis, which is the case in most of the people in our study, uh, iron can keep building up and it can cause cirrhosis of the liver. Uh, when you say cirrhosis at a cocktail party, most people think that alcohol is the cause of cirrhosis. But there are many causes of cirrhosis. Cirrhosis just means scarring. And in fact, globally, alcohol is probably not the most common cause of cirrhosis because of things like hepatitis B and hepatitis C around the world and so on. And hemochromatosis is one of the causes of cirrhosis. If you have cirrhosis from any cause, you're at increased risk of liver cancer. And this is what we demonstrated in the study today, that people with hemochromatosis, proven genetically, had about a tenfold increase in liver cancer. Wow. And, and had they been detected early, like you were saying earlier about screening and so on, they could have been treated with bloodletting. They could even have become voluntary blood donors. Canada has a very liberal policy in allowing them to be blood donors. And we could have pre prevented liver cancer. Hmm. We are talking right now with Dr. Paul Adams from the university or from Western University, who, along with the team at the University of Exeter in the UK, have looked at hemochromatosis, which is quite common and can have some very severe effects. So the way that you're describing it, Dr. Adams, it's almost good if you haven't been screened just to be a blood donor. Is it, is it as simple as saying if you're a regular blood donor, iron won't build up as much in That's your blood? Correct. Blood donor has many beneficial effects, uh, certainly does for the poor person who needs one, but there, there are are also felt to be beneficial effects to the donor. And it's a little bit hard to be sure that it's the effect of the blood coming off or the type of people that choose to be blood donors, kind of good Samaritans, altruistic, healthy joggers, that sort of thing. But uh, a lot of people who donate blood a lot say they feel energized. And uh, you don't hear that often in a medical clinic. <laughs> hmm. 
when we look at, at kind of having this test done, you brought up some ethics issues or you also brought up things like insurance discrimination. Talk to us about the, the tightrope over, you know, doing this genetic testing and what we still have to figure out in our society so that having a genetic test, knowing that you are predisposed perhaps for a condition, um, that it doesn't work against you. Well, that, that's exactly what I'm talking about. Um, we studied this in a big study in the year 2000 where we studied over 100,000 people. It was called the AIR study. We actually had a lawyer on staff to study genetic discrimination. And we really didn't find it, which was good. But we were only looking at hemochromatosis, which has kind of a soft landing. You find it, you treat it, you do fine. If you're doing screening for other types of things that have bad outcomes, you know, Huntington's chorea, certain types of cancer, and so on, then you will find that an insurance company, which is a, a private company, it's not a right that you have, will uh, say, no thanks, we don't want to offer you life insurance. That's not true for health insurance in Canada. We're quite fortunate that we have a, you know, pre-existing conditions are okay, but you you heard a lot about this during the U.S. election, about what they do have or don't have, and times are changing there. So uh, there are some issues with screening of, of anything. When, when you talk about screening, whether it's an x-ray or a genetic test, there are incidental findings. So you signed up to have a total body MRI, thought that sounded good, it was free, you were in a study, and then they found some little spot on your adrenal gland. And they said, well, we don't think it's too serious, but we want to stick this big needle that's about two feet long into you. I got a new student here, hasn't tried this yet, so here we go. <laughs> <laughs> you you paint the picture beautifully. Yeah. So, so, I mean, so, that, is that something that will just evolve, do you think? Well, we'll for, just kinda... for, for example, you many people know that you can have a panel of genetic tests done on yourself without even seeing a doctor. There are companies on the Internet that are well-known that you just submit a sample. You, sometimes it's saliva, and you put it in an envelope and you send it to them. And they send you a bunch of your genetic test results. The more you pay, the more genes you get. And, you know, not everybody's that happy with the results they get. They didn't really want to know all that information. And then there's another group of people who think that if you're paying for that, you should get all the information. You shouldn't just get what they want to send you. And so there is a bit of a debate amongst geneticists about should we only be notified about treatable genetic diseases? And not all of them are. Hemochromatosis is, but not all of them have a good treatment. Hmm. So this is one of the controversies. And in the study that we did that came out today, the, patient, the participants, these are all people from northern England, volunteered to have all of their genes tested at once, which is an amazing technological feat. And the cost of this is coming down and down and down. And it's kind of hard to measure, but it's probably under $1,000 to have 25,000 genes tested at once. And then it becomes a, a tour de force to um, analyze the results. It's like code breaking. 
Uh, you've got all this kind of alphabet soup that comes out of this genetic analysis, and somebody has to interpret this, and there are genes that are identified that we don't know what they do. We don't know whether they're active or not. We just know that they're present in you. So those are difficult to handle as well. And then there are a variety of genetic diseases. Hemochromatosis is like this, where some people get it very severely and get liver cancer and die, and other people don't seem to have any expression at all. They don't even have any abnormalities in their iron blood tests. So, and there's a whole spectrum in between. So this is one of, the, one of the other hazards of saying, let's get screened for everything. Let's just do it at birth and then tell the parents that here's a big list of things you, your child might have wrong. But we're not sure. You see, that, that's not that popular. But you, you probably know that in Ontario, newborns are tested for 50 or 60 genetic diseases, all of them much rarer than hemochromatosis. But the hesitation to add hemochromatosis to the list is that not everybody that has the hemochromatosis genes gets sick. And is it good information to have? And that's one of the controversies. But wow. Well, you bring up so many interesting conversations. And, Dr. Adams, we love that in talk radio. So thank you so much for yeah, the work okay. that you have done. Thank you for putting a, a name and a face to hemochromatosis because, like you say, it, it's pretty simple to ask for a test and it could save you from getting liver cancer, especially if, if you are male, because females don't show the, the same kind of results, right? That's liver correct. cancer is 10 times more likely in men, but not yep. necessarily in That's women. Right. Yep. Okay. Well, anyway, it's, thanks it's, for having me. It's been great having you. Please okay. keep safe. Okay, bye. Take care. That's Dr. Paul Adams from Western University, where he is a researcher at the Lawson Health Research Institute, also a professor at Western Schulich School of Medicine and Dentistry. And how interesting is it? You know, we always bring up Mark Cuban, who is the owner of the Dallas Mavericks in, in conversations like this. And Mark Cuban spends a lot of time on his health. And he will go and he will be tested for all kinds of things on essentially a monthly basis, if he's still doing it this way. So this was about a year ago, two years ago, that he was doing this. And he wanted all of these baselines. And it's great to have baselines in everything. We talked last week about our hearing. It's great to have a baseline in hearing so that you know this is me. Because walking bundles of emotion that we are, we're all a little different. And so this is my hearing. This is my vision. This is my level of iron in my blood, whatever it happens to be. And so Mark Cuban spends a lot of money because he has a lot of money in order to look after his health. But he's, you know, he's keen on finding anything early. And we have the ability to do that on a greater level as every day goes by. The question is, What's going to be done with that information? Maybe this is something that one day we'll get into with Dr. Thomas Cook, who we speak with on Mondays, on privacy, where it's, it's fantastic to be able to say, all right, let's see what we are predisposed to developing in our lifetime. Here's what your genetic code says about you. You might get this, you might get this, you might get this, and then insurance companies, when you apply for health insurance, say, yeah, about you. You might get this, you might get this, and you might get this. And so you worry about that, but as Dr. Allen pointed out, he didn't find insurance discrimination in their particular study when they were looking at hemochromatosis, 
but it's not necessarily a life-threatening condition by the age of 30. We're talking about developing cancer in the liver. It's a 10% or 10 times more likely condition in men by the age of 75. That's what this shows. But it brings up these conversations. Do you want to know everything? There might be people who get to the age of 13 and their parents say, here's your form, you have a chance of developing heart disease, and you might have a stroke by 45, and this is wrong with your blood, and you can't think as well as that person over there, whatever it is, and you might say at 13, yeah, you know what, I I would have rather not known any of this stuff. So we're entering a really unique time where if you want the roadmap of you, for your health, it's becoming clearer and clearer, and there's a lot of sightseeing to do on the way, but how much sightseeing do you want to do? How much would you rather say, you know, if I'm going to get this at the age of 80, maybe I won't live to 100, but I'm sure going to enjoy the first 80. And that's kind of taken away. So that ethics discussion is going to continue, but that information is going to become more and more readily accessible to us. And what is done with it is a really important conversation to have. As the pandemic began, we checked in on the Ontario Harness Horse Association and some of the challenges that they were going through. Certainly sports like hockey have been in the headlines as leagues try and find ways around COVID-19 and find ways to deal with COVID-19. We have learned that there are two players on Team Canada. They're in a bubble And they have tested positive for COVID-19. And so the final red-white game has been called off for today. And we, of course, have two Londoners, Ryan Suzuki and Mason Millman, who are there, and two London Knights, Brett Brochu and Connor McMichael. So we are monitoring all kinds of different sports-related situations. But how have things gone in the harness racing world? Brian Tropy is the general manager of the Ontario Harness Horse Association and joins us now. Brian, thanks for the time today. No problem, Mike. How are you? Not too bad at all. Brian, let's kind of look back to the spring and what you were dealing with then and kind of what, what you were trying to work out. Refresh our memories. Well, there was a lot of issues. Uh, originally, um, you know, when the COVID first hit, basically everything went to lockdown at about the middle of March. And so there was uh, riding stables, for instance, weren't allowed to have their clients come in to ride their horses. So uh, a few weeks after that, we got clarification that they're going to deem the care of the animals an essential service. So that allowed us to continue to look after our horses and train them and prepare them, although there was no opportunity to race them. And so that went on for a couple months, and then uh, they allowed us to go back racing. Uh, the racetracks all put in pretty strict protocols, um, you know, masking and disinfecting and social distancing and everything. And fortunately, we've been able to continue to race um, right up. We're still racing right now and haven't had any issues uh, as far as any COVID uh, spreads within the industry. So we've been extremely fortunate to, to be able to continue operating. Well, you need a big congratulations for that. What do you think it's been? Has it been just the buy-in of participants to do what they're being asked to do? Does it come down to something as simple as that, or is there more? 
Yeah, I think it's probably the buy-in, but uh, as well, it's it's an outdoor activity. So you know, basically, when you're out preparing your horses, it's the same kind of your your stable, your small business is the same uh, group of people that are in regular contact with other one another. Uh, the only time when you would really be going outside of that little bubble at the stable is when you go to the racetrack, and the racetracks have done a, a ter- terrific job of uh, implementing, like I say, very strict protocols. So, you know, it's unfortunate that we can't have fans at the racetrack right now, um, but the fact that we're able to continue racing is is huge for the industry because without the opportunity to earn revenue, you know, it's a very expensive endeavor to look after horses. So. Um, we just had a situation where, you know, it's kind of out of our hands now because with the new guidelines, provincial guidelines, with their color-coded um, way that they're dealing with the with the COVID and the spread, uh, if you go to lockdown, essentially horse racing can't operate in a lockdown phase. So just on, on Saturday, uh, they announced that Toronto was going into lockdown. So the thoroughbred industry, which was supposed to have 12 more days of racing, was basically terminated as of uh, Monday morning. So, so well, that, well, the, sorry, go ahead. No, no, I was just going to say that takes them away from racing until that lockdown ends. Yeah, and my understanding is it's for 28 days. Uh, I know that the racetrack and the and the horsemen's representatives, they're thoroughbred horses, so we don't represent the people in that industry. But I know that uh, they're working hard behind the scenes and trying to get uh, the government to give them consideration. You can still go and train your horses. Uh, the only difference is that you can't walk them over there and put them in a starting gate and run them. So I think they have a good argument to make that, you know, you're allowing all those people to continue to go in there and operate as an essential service. The only thing that you've taken away from them is the ability to compete in a race. So hopefully they can get some understanding from the government and get that uh, changed. But as of right now, I know that the horse people are making, they only had 12 days of racing left. So I know some horse people are making decisions right now about going south uh, with their horses a little early this year. Brian Trophy joining us, General Manager of the Ontario Harness Horse Association. And is that possible? Is it possible to get south right now? My understanding it is. It is um, that, uh, you know, there's there's people that have operate stables on both sides of the border, and there hasn't been any issue with uh, the traveling with the horses in between in between countries. Um, it may be a little more difficult with employees to get across the border this year, so they may have to look at uh, getting employees from the local area where they go instead of taking their regular employees with them. But hopefully that uh, that's something that can be worked out and it doesn't cause too many uh, problems for the horse people. Certainly. Brian Trophy joining us, General Manager of the Ontario Harness Horse Association. You mentioned without fans, but we've seen such a a great move to online racing. I love the people who describe harness racing as the perfect sport because it's quick, it's exciting, it's available 24 hours a day, you can bet on it, it has absolutely everything to it. But the idea that so many races are online now, can you imagine what life would be like if we didn't have that component? No, it, it would be totally, uh, I don't know that the industry would survive without it, quite frankly, because a lot of the wager that happens on the product that happens here in Ontario is from outside of Ontario. So there's a huge wager on our product in the United States, for instance. So if you cut off the access to those markets, and people bet on us in Europe and all over the world, um, so we we receive revenue when people from outside of Ontario bet on our product. So without that, it would be very difficult for the industry to survive. 
Brian Tropy joining us, General Manager, Ontario Harness Horse Association. Brian, just one other thing, and that is the overall health. As you as you went into the pandemic, there were certainly challenges. There were added concerns for a little while. And now, like you say, there has at least been operating, even though you haven't had fans there. The overall health of things, where would you put it? I would say it's tenuous. Um, there's some things that are on the horizon that may be a threat to the industry, uh, including single-game sports wagering. Um, there's some. There's a lot of chatter about that becoming legal in the next little while. Um, the government of Ontario is looking at opening up online wagering so that uh, outside private companies come in can come in and or and uh, offer sports wagering, which will be another cannibalization of the horse racing product, in my opinion. And so, uh, you know, hopefully that if the sports wagering does come in, uh, there's going to be some protections for the horse industry um, to offset, like if a Bodog or a, or a U-Bat or somebody comes into Ontario and starts offering horse race wagering, um, you know, buying product from outside of Ontario and selling it to our consumer and cutting out the industry, that's going to have a devastating effect. So we've really got to pay attention to that. Uh, as far as the, the rest of it, you know, we've got funding for the next 19 years um, through a long-term funding agreement with the government. So that that takes a little bit of the concern away, but there's always it seems like there's always something that's a threat to our industry as, in, as every other industry. Well, let's hope that we see the survival continue because, again, it can be described as the perfect sport and it has a lot of great people in it. Brian, thanks so much for the time today. We really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thanks for your interest. That's Brian Trophy, General Manager of the Ontario Harness Horse Association. And, you know, we look at single-game wagering, and as much as the leagues that would oversee this, say professional sports leagues, are going to love it. And single-game wagering is not just being able to bet on a game necessarily. It's being able to bet within a game so that you're sitting around with your buddies and you have your phones and you've set yourself 30 bucks to play with or whatever it happens to be and you are able to say well you know i think that joel Embiid is going to hit this free throw and i'm going to put five bucks down on that and and that can happen during the game and it will in some ways add to the experience of a game in other ways it's very dangerous because it is so easy, but that gambling ability exists now. So if you think that, hey, you know, we can't bring this into Ontario, okay, well, if you don't bring it into Ontario, it exists elsewhere. Uh, Let me give you an example. Champions League soccer is taking place right now, and Krasnodar, and I'm probably saying that completely wrong, is playing Sevilla, all right? And if I push this button right here... I am taken to a site, and I can look at that particular game that is going on, and I can make all kinds of different wagers as the game goes on, something called a double chance, uh, whether or not the teams will alternate in the next goal, how successful they will be in corner kicks, how many corner kicks there will be. And this, this is something I don't have an account, but I make use of a site to check scores and and check, you know, 
how players are doing in Europe. For example, Logan Mayhew of the London Knights is playing in Europe. I can get his team's game results on this particular site, but it also has a betting option. It's tied in with something called Bet365. And then you can do last team to score. Uh, will both teams score in the second half? How many exact goals will a team get? And then it breaks it down into players, and you can bet on different things the players are doing. So if you don't do this in Ontario... It's there in some ways already, and it's only a matter of time before the leagues themselves approve this. And, you know, in in some ways you can still do it on, say, an NBA game or an NFL game. There are availabilities through Bet365. So it's, it's good, but it's also bad at the same time. There are some scary parts about it. Problem gambling is one of them. But this is what exists, and the Harness Horse Association has done a very good job with its wagering. You know, that's that's one of those acceptable things. You know how it plays out. It's not sit necessarily and and you know and and do all this prop betting stuff. It's something that if you're raised on it, you understand. So. You know, how much would it be hurt if that money that was going to wagering on harness races, for instance, goes to a game between the Sacramento Kings and the Toronto Raptors on a Wednesday? Uh, that's something to debate. Absolutely. And what do they do if all of a sudden that money starts to go away? Horses will always have to eat. And horses eat a lot. There are so many different ways to deal with so many things. And if you have an open mind to something, you never know what you're going to uncover or what it might mean for you. And there is a clinic here in southwestern Ontario, and that clinic is making use of psychedelics in psychotherapy. And that sounds just far too fascinating for us to ignore. So we would like to welcome to London Live clinical psychologist Tatiana Zdib, who is the owner of Mind Setting. And Tatiana, we're going to find out a little bit about psychedelics and their use in psychotherapy. Thanks for being here. Oh, it's my pleasure, Mike. Thank you so much for inviting me. So when we think psychedelics, because I will go back and, and think Timothy Leary, and I will think about the 60s and the 70s and the drugs that were being used and, and those sorts of things, are we actually talking about things like psychedelics in the form of magic mushrooms or something akin to that? Absolutely, Mike, and, and you're absolutely right. You know, the work that the Harvard Psychedelic Club did, you know, Ron Doss, um, Timothy Leary, that group, they pioneered the work that, that I'm doing now in collaboration with Dr. Mike Hart at the Ready to Go Clinic. So we're not using psilocybin, like magic mushrooms, just yet. Um, I did apply for Health Canada exemption to be able to use psilocybin in October of 2019, and I'm Still waiting on that, but in the meantime, we're using ketamine, and ketamine works similarly to other psychedelics like psilocybin, like LSD. But for now, ketamine is the only one that is legally accessible through through a doctor's prescription. And is there a reason that ketamine has been deemed different than maybe psilocybin or anything else that you might be able to use? I think one of the main reasons is that ketamine has been used widely as an anesthetic 
in, in humans and in veterinary medicine for decades. And so I think that that makes people feel like it's safer to be used in other medical settings, whereas the other psychedelics just don't have that history of other medical uses. Right. It can be so common that when my son broke his arm when he was 13 years old to set it because it was so badly broken, he had to go on ketamine or be given ketamine as one of those sedatives so that they could kind of make the squiggle that was his arm back into something that was a little bit straighter. So, okay, then it it has been used. That, that makes it acceptable. But this is not about setting a broken arm. This is about dealing with say, our our mental health. So what sorts of things would you be able to deal with in making use of a psychedelic? Well, what the research has shown so far around the mechanisms by which ketamine and other psychedelics have their effects in terms of mental health is that there's a rapid regrowth of neurons post-treatment. So within hours of somebody taking oral ketamine or so we're using oral ketamine but you may know that ketamine can be administered intravenously intramuscularly but regardless of how it's administered we notice increases in communication among existing neurons and that creates new connections in the brain interesting one of the ways that we can heal people who are suffering from depression or anxiety or post-traumatic stress The other really fascinating component of the psychedelic medicine is that ketamine, for example, suppresses parts of the brain that are collectively called the default mode network. And the default mode network is the part of the brain that becomes activated when we're engaged in all of that self-referential worry, um, rumination, negative self-talk, the things that we know are a huge part of the etiology and the maintenance of depression. We're talking right now with Tatiana's Dib, and Tatiana is the owner of Mindsetting, and as she mentions, works in London here, works in southwestern Ontario, and is dealing with Dr. Mike Hart, who is a doctor in London, and they're talking about psychedelics and psychotherapy and some of the benefits that you get if you are suffering from depression or suffering from anxiety. So, Tatiana, maybe take us through how this is done. Do, do you come in and then take, uh, you know, a, a, a dose of, of ketamine and, and then go through discussion? How does it happen? It's a little different than traditional talk therapy, and so there's more time for introspection, during the psychedelic-enhanced psychotherapy session. So I had a patient come in today, um, and we spent the first 20 minutes or so with him just lying on the couch with his eyes closed, listening to instrumental music, and then just talking slowly when certain thoughts and feelings were coming up. And that's a little different than, say, traditional cognitive behavior therapy or or other talk therapies where we're spending the entire session talking about symptom manifestation and ways of alleviating the suffering. But I should also note that there's a five-step protocol that I've developed for the, the TRIP, and TRIP in this case stands for Therapeutic Reset of Internal Processes. And so because we're using 
um, psychedelics, there's a thorough assessment that needs to happen because this isn't for everyone. And so we do a thorough psychological assessment first. And then if that screening goes well, the patient is referred to Dr. Hart for the medical assessment. And then Dr. Hart prescribes the oral ketamine. And then after that, I do a planning session with the patient. And we do the assessment and the planning sessions remotely just due to the pandemic. We're trying to limit in-office visits as much as possible. And then after the planning session, that's when we do the ketamine-enhanced psychotherapy session. And that's two hours. Uh, So again, a, a normal therapy session is usually 50 minutes. But the ketamine sessions, we do two hours because we really want to capitalize on the medicine. And then after that, we do what's called an integration session. And it's during the integration session that we work with the material that was brought to the surface by the psychedelic medicine. Now, do you go through the psychedelic medicine and then you come back and and maybe have another type of the session? Because depending on ketamine, people will describe if you're on it, it's almost like you're going through a tunnel and then you will appear somewhere. And, you know, it's it's like, hey, if you're staring at a wall, that wall is not there for a second and some other things are happening. So would you be talking with someone or, or would they not get a dose that might elicit a response like that? We are using a very low dosage, so typically 75 milligrams, and that dosage is described more like the effect of having a couple glasses of wine. So we're not getting hallucinogenic effects at that low dosage, which lends itself better for the psychotherapy because we want some disinhibition to allow things to come to the surface, but we don't want people, like as you mentioned, going down that tunnel and then being distracted and not able to focus on the psychotherapeutic work. So the dosing really is important because we notice different effects at higher dosages. And so it lasts at the 75 milligram dosage for most people, it only lasts about an hour. And and that allows us to work with the person for a little while afterwards as well. And then the integration session, there's no ketamine, they're just stone cold sober and we're talking about what they did notice when they were under the influence of the ketamine. Does that make and sense? And as a final question, what do you find? Are, are you having people saying, hey, it, it, that was something that I, you know, that, that I really benefited from, it, that, that it was different than other maybe forms of therapy that they've tried? What are, what are you hearing about it? Oh, my gosh. So far, Mike, it's been amazing. And, and really consistently, people are reporting that it changes their perception of not only present events that are happening, but also historical events. People are noting that it changes the cognitive, the emotional, and the behavioral responses that they have to the stressors that they're dealing with. It really seems to enhance connection, objectivity, and flexibility, and these are things that are incredibly important in in mental wellness. Well, we really appreciate you describing what this is all about, because if it can make a difference for people who are dealing with anxiety and haven't found anything that really works, or people who are dealing with depression and really can't find anything that works, then uh, then that's good. That's very good. Uh, thanks so much for describing it, and please keep safe through everything that we're going through, Tatiana. Thank you so much, Mike. I really appreciate being on your show. Thanks again. We'll talk soon. That's Tatiana's dib. Tatiana is a clinical psychologist and has been working in London 
with Dr. Mike Hart and owns what is called mindsetting, but deals with psychotherapy using psychedelic enhanced medicines. So it's uh, it's interesting to look and, and see what in our brain responds to what therapies and uh, this is this is something that if you go back into the 60s and 70s they thought that this would be the way that we move forward and i'm not sure whether it was the anti-drug messages of the 80s i'm not sure what it was that maybe turned us away from it but now you're seeing more people looking at it again and saying well if we can do this in a controlled way there could be some benefit and so that's what they're looking into you've been listening to the london live podcast catch the show live on weekdays from one to three 